Welcome back to the Changemaker Podcast. I'm your host, Deke Copenhaver. My guest today is Bob Crawford. Bob plays the upright bass, bass guitar, and violin for the Grammy-nominated Americana band, the Avid Brothers. The group was the subject of the 2016 HBO documentary, May It Last, A Portrait of the Avid Brothers, directed by Judd Apatow, which also chronicles the Crawford's daughter Hallie's treatment for and rehabilitation from brain cancer. Crawford and his wife, Melanie, along with two other families, currently help lead the Press On Fund, an organization that raises money to discover groundbreaking cures and therapies for childhood cancer. Mr. Crawford is also the host of the Road to Now podcast. Welcome, Bob Crawford. Welcome to the Changemaker podcast, hosted by Deke Copenhaver. Deke is the author of The Changemaker, a Forbes publishing book that has reached number one on Amazon on multiple occasions and in multiple categories like management skills and total quality management. During this podcast, Deke interviews exceptional change-making leaders. Deke currently operates Copenhaver Consulting, where he helps local governments and other public organizations maximize their potential. He's also a sought-after public speaker. We hope that the change-maker has an impact on you today and that you find takeaways that make you a better leader in your life. Now, here's Deke. Deke, it's a pleasure to, to be with you again. We This is not the first time we've done this. No, I, you did my radio show years ago and we had a great conversation. I'm mm-hmm. like, golly, I need to get Bob on the podcast. Well, thank you for asking. Always happy. To One of the things that I always love to do with anybody I meet or talk to is find common ground. And so in doing my research and sort of stalking you over the past couple of days, I found a common ground issue that we both have. So... How does a guy who grew up in New Jersey ultimately failed out of his first college gig, followed the Grateful Dead, which that's what we share. I failed mm-hmm. out, but uh, I actually failed out three times. So oh, I, you got me beat. About, I would not, I would not recommend that, yeah. but end up in Charlotte, North Carolina and becoming a member of the Avery yeah. brothers. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's been a journey. Um, and I think it is a, testament and you might agree with this Deke, in your life um my drive and my will has always outpaced my ability and my talent <laughs> and i was blessed with a bad attitude when i was in a situation i didn't want to be be in and i don't i don't i, I believe me it's the thing I, I look back on i regret the most the times that i've was was a, a negative presence <laughs> where where I didn't want to be, but it but it was it just you know I it's like following your heart. It's probably the yeah. truest, most unvarnished version of following your heart, and and so I just I failed in the areas that I that I I didn't want to. You know, it's the advice I wouldn't give my son. Yeah, you know, yeah. completely. It's the advice I wouldn't give my son, and I just I just failed in a lot of areas. Uh, I, I, what they say in politics, you fail upwards and I, I failed yeah. upwards and, <laughs> and, and that's, and ultimately I, it, with, with Scott and Seth now, when, when I met them, I was going back to schools to study music because I had realized after working in the film business in Charlotte and Atlanta and, um, that that is not what I wanted to do with, with the rest of my life. You know, I was about 29 and I realized that, that I, I looked around on, on sets of films and, you know, just everyone, you know, the best thing about working in the film business is are the people you work with, 
It yeah. really is. They're, everyone's an artist. Every single department, every single person is an artist. And they are just, you know, the most incredible people in the world that could do anything they wanted to do, um, are, that would have the ability to do anything they want to do, are work on a film set. There's no doubt about that. And when it's good, the camaraderie is incredible. And it's like being in a band. It's like yep. being on tour. There's, there's just no doubt about it. Um, but I looked around in 17-hour days, uh, feast and famine, you know, three months without a day off and then three months without work, you know, those kinds of things. I just couldn't see it in the long run. And again, my attitude was just getting worse and worse. And um, I would look at the attitudes of people around me and realize that these people had all the toys you could want in life from working yeah. so hard. And uh, but they, but they, maybe they weren't always the happiest folks when you get into your late forties and fifties and sixties. Yeah. And so I decided to study music and my thought was if I'm in a classroom teaching music, uh, I might ultimately be more, more, have more gratification and just feel more satisfaction in life than if I was on a film set uh, and making good money. And that's where that's where that started. And that's what the things that happened because of that decision, just like when I was in New Jersey, uh, I graduated college after like the Grateful Dead stuff. I went back <laughs> to Stockton University. I think it's called Stockton University. Now it was like Stockton State College when I went. And um, I I was working at Sizzler and going to Grateful Dead concerts. And I had a coworker that I was, guys were friends and he went to Stockton and much smarter than I. And he said, why don't you go to school non-matriculated? I already flunked out of college. And so I took one class and I did really well. And then another semester I took another class and I did okay. And then they accepted me as a, as a, uh, as, as a student. So I finished my, college education and communications in 1995. And then I moved down South because I was interning for ABC, uh, for the, the um, WPVI, which is the ABC affiliate in Philadelphia. I was interning for them and there was a summer job that I didn't get. And the guy I interned for said, you need to go South because that's where, that's where the action is. You need to go South. And I did. So how did you meet the Avid brothers? So I was, going to Stockton and I was studying jazz guitar, but the first thing, this is so me, this is like, <laughs> this is such a me thing to do. My wife says I'm whimsical and it is, it's whimsical to pack up everything from New Jersey and drive, like literally drive South with a, a box full of resume tapes and resumes and knock on doors at TV stations looking for work. I mean, that is, that's whimsical. I mean, like when I decided to do that, all my friends in Jersey and family were like, why, why, why would yeah. you do this? Why, what, why? And I didn't really know why. I didn't know why. I just knew that there was, there was better somewhere, better for me somewhere. And, um, and the same thing, like leaving the film business, which you work so hard to get into and, and get, you know, at the top of the list for phone calls and, and to, give that up to study music. Um, uh, so I, I did, I gave that up to study music. And so the first day of classes is a jazz guitar major. And again, this was a thing where I had no bona fides to stand upon. So I had to take 
some lessons with the professor and then I had to take one class and I had to get, you know, everything I'm, I'm getting in through the back door everywhere I go. Yeah. And, um, and so I get in and, you know, I'm going to study jazz guitar. I'm going to study music theory. And then on the first day of classes, I, on a whim, I go to a music store with a friend of mine and I buy an upright bass and I had no, I had no reason to do that. That made, that made no sense. That just didn't, there was no reason to do that. <laughs> and so then I go back to school and I, I want to study um, jazz bass as well. And so for the remainder of my time, you know, next three years of Winthrop, I'm a so-so guitar player. And I'm a so-so bassist, maybe less than a so-so bassist because I don't know, I've never done it before and I'm learning on the fly. But when the, I had a, there was a graduate student guitar major who came to me and said, I know this guy, he's in a bluegrass band. They're looking for an upright bass player. And I was just beginning to play. So I was literally, it's funny because Scott Avett was just beginning to play the banjo. So we were literally just, you know, one, just, just right ahead. We were just, a, it was a mess. It was really a mess. Like at one point <laughs> we're, we're both working at this learning center and he's teaching some banjo lessons and I'm teaching some bass lessons. And we're literally one step ahead of our students, one lesson ahead of our students. And I would have these 15 year old kids come in who were fans of Jaco Pastorius, who I just, I can't, I got nothing for you. I don't, you know, I can't, I got nothing. For you. I can't help. You. There's somebody else out there that can, but I'm not the guy. So, and I think back to those, those like, teaching lessons, it's like, what was, you know, <laughs> What was I doing? You know, but you're just trying to survive and you're trying to work outside the box any way you can. You know, it's like it's, there's this, it's just a refusal and I'm not alone in this. And I, I know millions of people have, have, you know, got, gotten through life this way. Somehow uh, millions have failed. Some have succeeded. It's just like you just there's an easier way. But you just you refuse to take the easier way. For yeah. For whatever reason. Again, well, it, advice you would never give your child. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think part of good leadership is about being vulnerable and is not acting like you have all the answers. And we all make our own mistakes in life. But you call it being whimsical. I also think that part of leadership is a willingness to take risks. Mm -hmm. And at times when you take a risk, you're going to have people, friends and family, oftentimes tell you you're an idiot. You're crazy to do this, but just to keep that open mind to the twists and turns in life. So you, you know, you were in the film industry and then you became a student of music, but how old were you when you became, people talk about overnight success and I'm like, eh, that doesn't happen that often in the entertainment business or any other business. You know, Deacon, and if you'll, I, I, I look around at that and I think a lot of the overnight successful people, it's a, it's a quick ride. It's yeah. A quick ride. You're on and you're off. Like when we met with our, who is our booking, he's been our book, our only booking agent we are, we've ever had. Uh, we literally, we, we've been with him for 20, you know, 20 years, almost like probably like 17 years. And he always told us it'll be a hot air balloon ride not a rocket ship ride. Yeah. So like the slower you get where you're going, the longer you can stay there. And that's, I think that's been a, a thing, a thing with us. And, um, I don't know that I re remember this original question, but the idea of overnight success for me 
you know, was, and I just think that whole concept is, uh, it, it's, it's flawed. And I don't, I don't think it's a good aspiration. You know, I think it, you'll, even the, the journeys I'm on now with the things that I'm working on now, it's been, you know, five year, if not more than the five year journey. And, yeah. uh, and I can see that it's been, I see that now. I see each thing I do, you know, this isn't the, the achievement of something or this isn't the end of something. This is another step to doing something else like this. This job is for the next job. However, yeah. you want to break that down. If that's parenting or if it's like meaning like when I say that for parenting, it's like it's like you, your child faces a crisis or you're dealing with, a, you know, as children grow. Right. There's puberty and there's all, you know, it's like first it's like, you know, you want to keep them from burning their hand on the stove. You want to just someone's described it as like having a toddler as 24 hour suicide watch. You know, you just yeah. you want to keep them from, you know, alive. Right. And then as they grow you just there are other there are the the dangers change and your parenting style has to change to fit those dangers and you kind of want to be a little bit ahead if you can and and um but it, it's always changing it's like if you were the best parent of a toddler you might not be the best parent of a teenager yeah because that game is going to change and so when i when i what i with a with my career goals like the things i like to work on these days it's like you know this is i'm learning the skills here that are going to i will build upon when i'm doing the next thing that are going to require different skills well and, and i think that that's another mark of good leadership too and I've, I've heard you say that you you don't see yourself as a leader i i happen to disagree on that but is to always keep an open mind to the next possibility and a lifetime love of learning. I think if you get to a point where you think that you know it all, nobody ever knows it all. And it's kind of, I, I tell people in my adult life, I was in banking out of college. Then I got into real estate and development. Then I ran a nonprofit land conservation organization for four years. Then I was mayor for nine years, started a consulting business, had a radio show, now have a podcast, do speaking. I'm like, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. Mm -hmm. But it is, I think that that's what, if you have a love of learning and a fascination of the world around you, that that's going to always make you a better leader. And part of leader, you know, you don't have to be in an elected position. You don't have to be a CEO. You and your family are a leader. And I want to talk a little bit about Hallie and her illness, how that changed you as a man, as a person. But one thing I very much respected about just researching you, you, you took a year away from your career, you know, for your daughter and for your family. And that is leadership to me. Yeah. I didn't want to, you know, <laughs> I wish there was another way, you know, I, I, it was kind of the option when there were no other options. You know, yeah. it, it was, um, you know how the pandemic hit and we were all like in March of 2020, we're like, well, we'll just, we'll do, we'll take three weeks off and we'll come yeah. back to this. <laughs> I think initially that was kind of where, you know, my, my head was. And then we just, it just, we just realized that this is, this was not going to fix, get fixed. Yeah. This was not going to get fixed. And, and um, there was just, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I didn't want to do it uh, to, 
you know, I had to be with my, like my family needed me. I absolutely had to be there. And I wanted to be there. And I would have been miserable if I wasn't there. So yeah, I took that time off. And that's a testament to a lot of ways with the people who supported me, like the band where Scott and Seth were, you know, like, you got a job. You got a yeah. job. And they the band supported me and my and my wife. And that's like it's one of the things that so many families don't have. It's funny, I, I just thought about this recently, like this idea of paid family leave and the failure of the Democrats to sell this for the American people. You just go on GoFundMe and look at all those families who have kids yeah. who have cancer, who are asking for help, who need help, who need financial support. You know, sure. It helps out when you have your first child, both parents can be there for six weeks, two months, whatever it is to get settled in, change your life. Great for the, for the baby, great for the parents, great for the family. But you know, there's another side to this and, um, you know, St. Jude, they provide a lot, they provide all they can, but St. Jude can't give you, can't pay your mortgage at home while you're, yeah. you know, while you're there. It's a, no one offers what St. Jude offers, but they don't offer all of it. And so the idea of that being, you know, it's great. And GoFundMe is great. You know, I'm always, I'm always helping with people on GoFundMe and, and then like sharing it on social media because it's so important. Um, but but um, that, that support I got from the guys in the organization, in the organization when Hallie got sick, you know, I wouldn't have... Uh, I wouldn't have been able to um now I would have lost my job and and we would have you know then you, you just have to work you know the saddest thing at St. Jude or any cancer hospital is when you see a sing a parent there by themselves like well with covid it's only been one parent allowed but but when you see a parent there by themselves with a child with cancer and often with a second child in tow you know that's heartbreaking and so to have you know two caregivers there and not having to work was a great blessing. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I talk about with leadership as well, it's, it's important for leaders, leaders to develop a culture. And I think in the workplace, I, and I speak on this a lot, you know, you need to become an employer of choice, someplace that people want to work. I mean, we see what's happening with labor shortages, but I think the Avid brothers, I'm fascinated with the culture that you guys have established and it's that, you know, those guys would have your back when you had to take a year off is that's, that's what leadership looks like to me. It's making people feel safe, secure, and included, but you sort of operate as a democracy and we'll get a little bit more into politics, but the band itself is kind of a, its own democracy. Sure. Yeah. But the three of us, it's a, um, for most, and this isn't across the board because there are clearly moments when, one person can make a case and like if we get something to do or or there's a situation with the company or you know any decisions that need to be made you know one person can make a case and say listen i just can't i can't do it this way and the other two you know, normally would you know go 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 along with that if someone really is feeling that in their heart no matter what the other two want to do but um 
typically it's a two, you know, when it comes down to it, if something gets two votes, it, um, it carries the day. And that's, that's, I, I want to get your take on this too. I've watched a documentary on, I'm a big REM fan. I went to the university of Georgia, but watched a documentary on them. And apparently, so Peter Buck was a little bit older than the other guys, but when they formed the band, Pete had seen that what usually broke up bands was fights over royalties. So they set up the band to where everybody shared in the royalties equally, no matter what you contributed to the song or not, which I think is that's, you know, here again, that's a democratic way to operate the, the band. Yeah, we did that as well. Yeah, we did that as well. Yeah. I'm and that's, that, that. yeah. that's, it goes back to your analogy of the hot air balloon. I think, yeah, I love bands that are in it for the long haul. And, you know, you see, I've heard you comment in one of the podcasts I listened to about Willie Nelson. You know, he's 90 years old and he's still out there. God bless that guy. But I think that, <clears throat> that should be, and you talk about the, you know, the rocket ride to fame and then you're gone. So I think that that's another part of good leadership is really taking an eye to the long run in the big picture. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, you have to think about that. Um, you have to think about, and it's funny, like I'm, I just turned 50 and I feel like I'm just thinking about that, about everything. You know, I'm 54. <laughs> the horizon <laughs> changes a little bit. Yeah. And it just, you're you're always thinking out five years, ten years, you know. Our our schedule is booked for twenty twenty two. You know, we're talking about twenty twenty three. Yeah. You know, and that's you just you and and it's funny because we are at a time of uh, unknowable circumstances. We don't know what with COVID. We just we still don't know. We still you know we still don't know what things are what's going to be no well i i I know that you're sort of a student of politics Mm -hmm. and what is your i'll give you my take on politics these days it it just seems like and i talk a lot on the show about i view you know society is a bell curve and i think most people are somewhere in the center of the bell curve and can have a good conversation like we're having but primarily what you see in the mainstream and media and social media and in politics are the extremes. So I, I think that's not really representative of society as a whole. In my opinion, I'd love to get your take on that. I agree with you that it's not representative as a, as a, as society on a whole. Like I, I completely agree with that. The problem is that what happens in those extremes is going to impact all of us. Yeah. And if the extremes are controlling the levers of power, we're all going to have a problem. Yeah. And so that's where we can't afford to not be aware at this point, unfortunately. I'm, I couldn't agree with you more. So you are also a historian, <clears throat> and <clears throat> your podcast is at the road to now. And I was thinking in researching and on you that – you know, the old saying that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm. But it's amazing to me how many people don't know history these days. Or I saw a comment that you made about a civics class in high school that you loved. 
Mm. We don't teach civics anymore. So there's so much lost in that people don't understand where we came from down the road to now. So talk a little bit about your podcast. Well, let me first talk about my 10 year old son's civics test. He had to take on the bill of rights, 10 amendments, and he got a hundred and he tutored his friends the night before. So if that is not like one of the greatest parenting moments of my life to see my son excel at that, (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, well, with with you as his father, I can totally oh understand. Oh God, that. <laughs> I was crying. It was just beautiful. Um, the road to now, the, it started in 2016, and it's one of these things where you know I've always loved history and on the road with the band. I read history books. I mean, like 700,000 page biographies of obscure presidents and and the like, and uh, um. There's a guy, Ben Sawyer, uh, who grew up with Scott and Seth, and Dane Honeycutt, who's our tour manager, probably the most important person in our organization, to be honest with you. Well, Scott, Seth, and Dane, and Ben grew up together, went to school together, were, you know, went through the graduation. They were these good buddies in the same friend circles uh, their, whole life, their whole lives. I think that's another mark of the success of our band is because we're so rooted in this, like, uh, family atmosphere but um but so dane would always say you need to meet ben you need to meet ben ben got his phd at michigan and then was a fulbright scholar and is an expert in russian history he's a doctor dr ben sawyer and he he's currently a lecturer history history lecturer at um middle tennessee state university and so before hallie got sick ben and i would talk about doing a history podcast and 2011 hallie gets sick I don't care about history anymore. Well, by 2016, things were really going well. And so I called Ben one day. I said, listen, if we're going to do this, now's the time. Things are good. Let's, let's do this now. And so we've been doing it since 2016. And it's funny because when we started doing it, and the idea is how does the individual narrative fit in with a larger historical nar- narrative, right? Yeah. And how did we get here? Because those are two questions are, are very connected. They're very, they're intertwined. So we start in 2016. In May of 2016, during the primary battles for the election, when you have populist Bernie Sanders and populist Donald Trump beginning to gain outside acceptance in these traditional, in our traditional two-party system. Mm-hmm. And it was a really unique time to begin to mark time and to begin to analyze the road that the country is on. And looking back five years in the rearview in the rearview mirror to where we've come, how far we've come since then, how far we've come off the map of the history since World War II is just fascinating. And so we can, you know, it's not all always politics. It's not always serious. We do golf. We've done the history of NASCAR with Kyle Petty. We've, you know, we did the, one of my favorite episodes of the year was with um, Amy Arkitsinger from the Washington Post who wrote a book about Miss America. 
Um, another one of my favorite of the year was Jeffrey Rosen from the, the National Constitution Center. So, I mean, we cover broadly um, all different aspects of history, but it's always that same, how do we get here kind of uh, attitude. And um, it's also great to, you know, historians, I really feel for historians. Let me say last year, I got my master, I earned my master's in history. <laughs> which was uh, a Congratulations. journey. Uh, thank you. It was the end of a, uh, another a five-year journey of, of doing that. But, but I, I would always criticize the academy because historians, they're doing this great work and this great research, and no one cares but other historians. Yeah. No one cares but the guys, the men and women who go to the conference. Yep. It's not making a dent. We, you know, we're not changing the way like you say, it comes back to that primary education. And we're not, anybody who thinks that the view of history doesn't change over time is wrong. It does change over time. And you it's funny because you'll notice certain presidents come back into vogue at certain times. Mm -hmm. You know, in 2004, John Adams David McCullough resurrected John Adams, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and he's much revered and a lot of attention given to Andrew Jackson uh, and during the early in the Trump presidency and Grant general general Grant President Grant got a lot of got got some new treatments over the past couple of years. And it's not like people are making up new stuff. It's just that we're we're we read the historical documents in in light of of new information uh up until the 1960s we didn't really care about african history or women's history and as those uh disciplines have gotten you know deeper and and more um more intense scrutiny uh we we can now we can view this whole thing as a whole argument over 1619 versus 1776 we need to view them together we need to hold them. One doesn't cancel out the other. No, together yeah. they tell, you know, a bigger story. And we need to, and we have a problem with this at this moment in this country. But it's very important for us as a nation, if we want to continue in any kind of a democratic form, we need to be able to accept the good and the bad of our historical ancestors and that means some statues come down some statues don't yeah <clears throat> and uh but we need to accept that george washington did and he this nation would not be this nation without him and what he did and that laying down his his laying down the presidency um willingly after two terms was the greatest act and laying down his sword after the revolutionary war after the revolutionary war those two acts were the some of two of the greatest acts in human history in the drama of humanity and nations and states and fiefdoms i mean those those two acts by that man were we we, we need to forever be grateful to him for doing those things. He also had slaves. 
He yeah. also broke his own laws to try to get, you know, only only judge, only judge, one of his slaves that escaped. He went to incredible uh he went through a lot of machinations to try to get her back. He never did, but even, you know, breaking the fugitive slave law of the time. So so I mean, do we condemn him for that? We point it out. We do condemn. I'm, we condemn that, but we don't condemn the whole picture. No, and, and that's you know it's it's concerning to me when people because of the scrutiny these days. Nobody's perfect, you know. And you and I both share a strong faith. We're both Christians, but I'm flesh yeah. and blood. I'm human. I'm sinful, and you know I if. Uh, if somebody now, because it's become so much more intense since I was in office, I don't know that I'd want to put myself through the scrutiny again. And so, but I'm touching on George Washington, but he was that walking away from power had a major influence on me. He was the American Cincinnatus. Exactly. And I thought after nine years in office, people said, well, why, why don't you run for higher office? I said, because that was never about what it was about for me. It was about serving my community. It was not about politics. But, but yeah, so George Washington's action had a strong impact on me. But you guys recently had a song that sort of talks about American history, and I think there might have been some controversy over it, over We Americans. I got to say, if over all of our songs, I don't know why that one would be controversial. No, I'd, it's, I've listened to it again yesterday. And I'm like, it sounds like a prayer to me. Yeah, I think, and I think if you listen to how, the, and this is my take, not anybody else's take, but if you listen to how the um, the verses uh, line up and the courses line up, it kind of, the the ultimate thing is not, not about the North or the South. I don't think anything's wrong with condemning slavery. No. Pointing out that it happened. Yeah. Like it happened. Are there racists in the North? Have there always been? Yes, there are. There always have been. You know, being against slavery, there you had abolitionists who were the the radical. They were radically against slavery, often under the under the idea of this is goes against God. Um, but then you had northern businessmen who Slavery suited in some ways, sometimes, or their or their their desire to remove slavery was was an economic desire. Yeah. So then you had people in the South who didn't own plantations, didn't own slaves, and could you know could care less. Yeah. Uh, and and so so, but to condemn slavery or to condemn a song because it points out the truth. That is undeniable. You know, yeah. when I went to, was getting my master's, we got, when you took a survey of history, you know, different surveys of history, we got to the Civil War. The first day, and this is Arizona State University online, first day of the Civil War section, the professor says, Civil War is about slavery. That's it. That's it. Full stop. The Civil War was fought over slavery. Wasn't about yeah. states' rights. It was states' rights to own slaves, so people could own slaves, their property. So, um, but getting back to the 
the aspect of the, the song itself, I believe, and I can't quote it here, but it, to me, listening to it, and the more I listen to it, it's actually, a, we stand before God. Yes. You know, and we're united through God and in our faith and in our love for each other. And that should yep. be, that should be the final, the final word on, um, on our, <laughs> on our idea. And that doesn't mean that we are a theocracy in this country or we should, we should not be a theocracy in this country at all. But it means that as individuals and the way we treat other individuals, you know, we stand before God. Well, and that's, I, I've never viewed things through a political lens, but I, I share with people, I'm like, I'm a Christian. I don't begrudge anybody else their faith. But in the Bible, we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that doesn't say your black neighbor, your white neighbor, your rich neighbor, your poor neighbor, you know, Latino neighbor. That's It's a command, not a request. And it doesn't, we're all neighbors. And I think if we have that mindset, that's probably the best way to look at it. If we can, it's not easy. It's impossible. Yeah. That's what we try. But, but that's, that's a good bar to shoot for. Yeah. No, that's, that's what we have to shoot for. Recognizing that, you know, it's like the gospel to me is about the upside down kingdom. You know, it's in Luke four, the idea that Jesus came to inaugurate the Jubilee. Yeah. This is when the slaves are free, the land is left fallow, and debts are relinquished. Yep. We are free of our debts. And that does not fit capitalism. <laughs> now, do we jettison capitalism? Heck no. I think capitalism is great. <laughs> I think it is the best. It is the best thing we got going in this country. But does it mean that we rethink how to help and when to help others? Yeah. You know, the rich young ruler couldn't get into the kingdom of God until he sold everything. And you can reinterpret that any way you want. But the fact is that we can't really live up to that in this society. That's, that's how that is, right? The kingdom of God is the now and the not yet, right? It's the now and the not yet. And so the importance that we need to realize with the gospel is that it is, it is the world we live in, just as it is the world 2,000 years ago, but it's flipped. What God is saying is what you got going on, you need to flip it. Yep. And just we need to be aware of that. And I think in being aware of that, we could be kinder and gentler and more compassionate. Look, was in Matthew 25, what is the, you know, the least of these you do for me? I look at that with yep. my daughter. She's yep. the least of these. You know, when the masks were controversial, I guess they still are, we had family members who condemned us for requesting people wear masks around her because it was taking away their freedom and that we were using our daughter to explore our politics. Yeah. And there is a growing refusal amongst Christians to deny this idea, this, this, this kind, the kindness 
and the the love of the gospel. They're just they're just trying to deny it um, over individual freedom. I don't see where like where's the line between individual freedom and collective goodwill and collective good. Yep. You know, we can't. We gotta. We gotta find a, a line there. There's got to be a line where they're both. Well, they're both satisfied. And I I think to my mind, what I'm trying to do with myself right now is using every platform I have, whether it's my podcast, speaking engagements, executive coaching, to bring people together on common ground to have these conversations, because I think they're very important to have. But I want to, I want to touch base with something else too, that music for me is a common ground issue. Music unites people. And I wanted to share um, a personal story with you about, um, so my wife's cousin, Dickie Boardman took his own life this past fall and just, he had had Parkinson's for years, was just in so much pain. He was larger than life. Just everybody loved him, but his niece was at your show. One of the shows at Red Rocks. And so we're on a family text thread. And so she, um, videoed, no hard feelings. And she and her then fiance now husband, because it struck them so personally, just having lost her uncle, it just, she said it is that song made, they were just teared up, just bawling. But she said that song has given me so much peace. And I I told her she used to work with me, just a wonderful girl, Virginia Bundy. But I said, I want to share that story, you know, with Bob. Because that's to me, you whether you knew it or not, you touched the life of somebody that had just gone through a family tragedy and brought her peace. Yeah, that song. Well, first, I'm I'm sorry for their loss, and uh, I'm grateful that that song brought them peace and comfort. And that's that song has taken on that role. Yeah, for so many. Well, as we draw to a close here, Bob, and thank you, you have just been the most amazing guest. And I think we've, I mean, we've covered theology, religion, we've covered a lot of things, but, but I figured we would, but I would like to ask you what on any given day puts a smile on your face and brings joy to your heart. I think hearing the, and I think my wife would agree with this, hearing the, this, the sounds of our children, their voices, uh, you know, when they laugh or say something funny or say something brilliant that we don't, uh, didn't, you know, just catches us off guard. Um, Hallie has a squeal when she gets really excited, she squeals. And I think, uh, um, my son, (laughs) he's getting, getting to the age where he can, uh, he can do battle verbally. And he had a funny, witty quip about me, a joke uh, this weekend. And, and that just like tickled my wife. And, and you know, it just showed his mature maturing. And so that kind of stuff, that's that's what I'm grateful for most often. Well, I, I will tell you, Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays. And thank you for being a great guest. And I thank you also, Bob, for using your notoriety not fame, your notoriety to do great good in the world. Well, thank you, Pete. Um, It's my pleasure. I'm always happy to join you. And we will definitely have you back. Thank you.
Thanks, man. Dropping the mic and we are out.